Welcome back. Stephen Cameron is a bit of a legend in the financial services industry. He's one of those people who seems to know everyone and everything, and he's a thoroughly nice guy with it too. So we had a chat about the recent autumn statement, the state pension, social care, and what Stephen would say to them if he found himself trapped in a lift with Pensions Minister Laura Trott and Economic Secretary to the Treasury, Andrew Griffiths. I hope you enjoyed the show. How long have you been at Aegon or Scottish Equitable or its various incarnations? It seems like it's been forever. Like, have you ever done anything else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been there for 27 years, I think, now. I've got a, a nice little 25-year uh, gift halfway through lockdown, which was nice. But before then, I was at a company called the Life Association of Scotland yep. and was there for about 10 years. So I did my actuarial training there and learned the ropes and then moved to Scottish Equitable and now Aegon with Shoot Ritchie initially and progressed ever since. So it's funny when you mention company like Life Association, which I remember only takes us back to the days when there were dozens and dozens of life insurance companies. And you think back to the the tables of with profits payouts, performance tables you get back in the 80s and 90s. And there were just pages and pages of these companies. And they've all oh, I was gonna say they've all gone. They've they've mostly disappeared, haven't you? There's very few left still standing as going concerns these days. Yeah, that's true. Was it money management used to do yeah. all these surveys and whatever I remember having Janet to... Wolford. <laughs> Absolutely. Goodness, we're coming up with some blasts <laughs> okay. from the past. Okay. Anyone on the age of 40 listening to this is going to be looking at them and going, what, what, what are they talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Anyone under the age of 50, Tom. <laughs> Let's talk about, talking about ageing. I mean, fiscal statement last week. I did get a slight sense. I mean, like, you know, we can talk about the context and the reasons why we've ended up where we have, but there was just a slight sense of, right, you're all heading back to the 14th century now. It was not exactly the most cheerful event. I mean, but I mean, for what it's worth, and I'd be really interested to hear your take on the various aspects of it. I, under the circumstances, you know, taking account of the cost of furlough and Ukraine, and, you know, we can, we can argue about the politics of how the Conservatives have managed the economy over the last 10 years or whatever. But but given where we're at, I actually thought it was a pretty balanced statement, you know, in in, in lots of ways. What was your take on it? Yeah, I think I would agree. I I felt that I certainly wouldn't want to be the Chancellor uh, at the moment. I think it would have been a particularly challenging budget to pull together, Uh, not least because of the recent events, whether it's the the recent mini-budget and all the collateral damage that that caused, uh, but also the the huge scrutiny, worldwide scrutiny, on mm-hmm. what he was going to say and could he show that the UK's finances were returning to a sounder footing. So I felt it was a bit of a kind of needs-must budget mm-hmm. and he certainly had to make sure that he had all these figures fully funded and he had to make sure that it was scrupulous, scrupulously, if I can say it, surprise-free. Um, we couldn't have afforded any rabbits in the hat. So it was a budget that, as you know, pretty much we knew everything in advance. But I think that he did deliver. He talked about his three objectives of stability. I think that hopefully we'll see some more stability on markets, on, on inflation over time and on, on interest rates. He talked about growth. I think the fact that we didn't see much on, or if anything, on private pensions in the budget was probably because of this investment superpower, which is great that the Treasury now, now sees within pensions. The public services side, yep, there were some uh, cuts, but there were also some additional expenditures there. And he also delivered, I think, on the theme of protecting the most vulnerable. I'm sure we'll talk about state pension triple lock, but also the social care deal, I think, fits into that particular category. So overall, I agree with you, despite some feedback that we're now seeing, uh, no one was going to be super happy with the budget, but bearing in mind the, the situation, I think that... I, I agree. It was a it was a balanced approach to take, and fingers crossed it will it will do the do what it's intended to do. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think on the political front, it was kind of interesting that you know he just it was a bit like 
Ken Clark in the late 90s will just will throw all the, all the kind of difficult spending stuff into the next parliamentary session. We'll let the, we'll let the next government deal with that. You know, so a lot of the, a lot of the pain doesn't really kick in until after the next general election, which is which is just like smart politics, I guess. But it's you know arguably good economics. I don't know that, so that's perhaps a different question. But uh, there was definitely a sense that he's saved up some of the really nasty stuff for further down the line. And I do agree with you about. I think it was interesting. I, to listening to Rachel Reeves, she could point to the fact that, look, you guys broke it. You know, this is on your watch. You know, this, the problems are here because of you guys. But she was actually struggling to to say much that she could disagree with about the announcements that they'd made. And I think in particular, your point around the welfare uprating was the right thing to do, but also perhaps slightly left Labour with nowhere to go on it. Yeah, I mean, on, on the, the, the triple lock, I agree. I previously, when, when we saw the suspension of the triple lock, from April this year, I did support what the government did then because the the reason for, for moving away was because of a real anomaly with furlough, with earnings rocketing back upwards. So I think if they had stuck with the triple lock last April, pensioners would have effectively got a windfall at the expense mm. of those of, of working age. Whereas I felt this time round, it would have been unfair to have not granted an inflation increase, not just because state pensioners have had a lot less than inflation to cope with over the, the last X months and through to next April, but also because I think it was probably the, the morally right thing to do. Yeah. So it does come at cost, obviously. It comes at a cost to those of working age. And I have to say, I'm I'm not at all convinced that we'll see triple locks appearing in any future manifesto <laughs> commitments. I've been calling it a last gasp for the triple lock because I really do think that, you know, we've had this, well, we've had these state pensioners on this and we talked about we're all getting to that age, yeah. uh, Tom, but, you know, you get to a certain age when you don't want to be on a roller coaster, do you? You don't want to have all these U-turns and loop the loops and whatever, so... But I do think that we're going to need to move to a different approach to deciding how to operate state pensions going forward that works for the government, that works for the state pensioners themselves, that's sustainable, that's affordable, but it's also predictable so that, that people can plan ahead. So I do envisage uh, we may still have three elements, but I don't think they're going to work in the same way. So whether it's averaging the constituent parts over a three-year period rather than a year-on-year approach, or whether it's even just taking the average of price inflation earnings growth in 2.5%, just to add the three together, divide by three to come up with a figure. There will be different ways of of doing this, but I think the days of a year-on-year three-way comparison, when we've got such volatility in the various underlying metrics, you would never have designed it that way had we seen what we're now seeing today. So I think we're going to need to move, move away from that. I don't know if you have had a look at the, the OBR report, their predictions on, on inflation within that. And although Jeremy Hunt mentioned the 7.4% on average, mm. I think it was for inflation next year, it starts the year at around 10 and it ends the year about 2.8, I think it is. Wow. So huge variability in, in the pattern of, of price increases going forward. And looking ahead to further years, I think that we had 2024. What I did was I looked at the kind of quarter three inflation predictions. Because that's think, where the uprating comes in, yeah? Yes, yes. So it's probably not an exact match, but but I, I had a go at that. And 2023, they're predicting 6.9. But in 2024, it goes to 0.2%. And then in 2025, minus 1.1%. And then it kind of begins to move up towards the 2% thereafter. But how on earth do you work a triple lock when you've got inflation in some years negative and in some years very high? And who knows what's going to happen with with earnings growth over those periods as well. So I definitely think we need to move forward and come to something that's more sustainable in the future. Well, and it's also worth noting that the reason the triple lock was introduced, you know, there was an original Liberal Democrat manifesto promise that then became part of the coalition government. And the whole point of that from Steve Webb was to bring pensioners back up to what they'd lost. So the state pension back in 2010 was 
not much over £5,000 a year now. Okay, obviously inflation would have brought it up anyway, but we're now looking at it going, it's going to be heading up over £10,000 a year. And you compare that against the PLSA minimum retirement standard of, I think, about 10900 now. And, you know, the state pension is getting there. It's catching up. Obviously, the intention was never that it would just keep doing that forever. The, the, the mechanism was there to create that catch up. And, and so at some point, you're going to have to stop it anyway. And I thought it was interesting, the announcement they made about the state pension age review mm. conclusion dropping early next year, yeah. where they reference fiscal sustainability, which wasn't yeah. part of the... I mean, they didn't actually use that phrase in the original brief for the review. And mm. so the, those two really sit together, don't they? That that question of the level of state pension and the, and the timing of it. Yeah, sometimes you, you hear a politician say something and you think that was very carefully inserted into that part of that speech. And I agree with you that the fact that he chose to mention that the outcome of the state pension age review would be announced early next year. Not that that was new news, but it would be new news to most people. And the fact that he mentioned that in his budget speech around the time he was talking about the triple lock was certainly not accidental. And I can't remember if we disagree or agree violently on this or not, Tom, but I'm going to risk saying it anyway. We still think, Aegon is, is, is strongly of the view that if we see the state pension age going up and up and up, so at 67 from when we yep. retire, it'll be going up to 68 shortly after. And, you know, it could go up to 69 or whatever. And I do think that there will be many individuals who just won't be able to continue to work effectively until those advanced ages, through health reasons, mm. through personal reasons, whatever. And so I do think that we need to, to step back and consider if we can do something more fundamentally different in future. And the one that, that we would like at least considered further is to give some people, give people, not some people, all people, the flexibility to, to take their state pension a little earlier, maybe three years earlier, but subject to an actuarial deduction so that the finances are, are equivalent. Uh, now, I know there's all sorts of issues there with, well, if all you've got is a state pension and you're getting less than that, do you fall back on means-tested benefits? But, you know, we do have auto-enrolment now, so hopefully fewer and fewer people will have will retire on, with nothing more than the state pension, so that might diminish as, as an issue. And there's the timing and whatever, but, but I do think we need to think more radically about what we can do with the state pension, the level, but also the age at which it kicks in. That's really interesting. Let's just hold that thought for a moment, because I want to just, I'm, I'm really interested in that, but I just want to rewind briefly to the triple lock where we we, we started this line of thinking um, and you talked about some sort of averaging. To me, that makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, you, you made a really important point there. It has to have some clarity and you have to give retired people confidence that the system will continue to support them. So what they don't want, and we've seen this very clearly in the last couple of years, all the talk about the triple lock. I think what retired people don't want is that fear that their standard of living is going to get chipped away at, at the whim of a politician, at the stroke of a pen, they're just going to take away that uprating. And that, that uprating is really important to me because I don't have much to live on and the state pension is a really big part of that. So there has to be some kind of clarity around the formula. But I also have sympathy with the politicians who've had to deal with this kind of volatility and having to make it up on the hoof a bit. So I think some kind of synthesis of the different measures of, of uprating that delivered clarity and continuity and, and maybe a modicum of control for the parliamentarians. Maybe you, know, you could have a, a, a window, a band, so you allow some, some fiscal control from year to year, but within constrained bands, I think, would make, would make a lot of sense, a sustainable long-term way forward. Yeah, ideally you would, you would depoliticise it, and I know that that's probably impossible, but... £100 billion pounds a year, Stephen, depoliticise <laughs> that. It's kind of a big ask. Well, I mean, you know, what will be interesting is if the different parties' manifestos take a radically different view. If they don't, then that's as close to depoliticising it as, in yeah, my mind, you can fair. get, you know. Um, 
rather than it becoming something that the party in power is accused of reneging and the other parties saying, oh, but if we were in power, we would. So I think if we could get to, to, to that, I think it's got to be sustainable, as we've said. It's got to be fair and it's also got to be seen as fair. And I think that being seen as fair is sometimes different from being fair. And obviously you could look at that through different generational lenses and come to different conclusions. So I feel that in many regards, some of what we're seeing right now might just um, encourage more people to, it's just like, you know, an increase in tax. I think I saw that the BBC were changing the, the rhetoric that they used because increases in taxes shouldn't be seen as a bad thing necessarily if they, <laughs> if they go to fund the greater good. So I'm hoping that maybe some of the difficult challenges we're facing will, will perhaps make more people think more laterally about whether or not they find something fair or acceptable, but who knows. <laughs> I think whether it's fair or acceptable sometimes depends on whether I'm a winner or a loser from it. Well, well so how perhaps, how yeah. <laughs> perhaps how far have you thought into that kind of variable state pension age thing? Because I mean, you know, you, you do bump up against issues of sort of deliberate impoverishment and means tested welfare support, you know, the pension credit. Have you got to the point of being able to present a, a kind of a workable set of proposals on this? And we've not got a kind of details blueprint for this, but as you know, there is already a mechanism for deferring your mm-hmm. state pension and there's a formula that, that gives you an increased weekly amount if, if you defer by every five weeks or whatever the, the formula is. So in terms of the, the number crunching, it's not outside the realms of possibility to simply reverse it and bring it back in the other direction yeah 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 so so that's relatively easy or at least it could easily be done by the government actions department or or, or whatever mm. i think that the, the the challenge is the one about means testing and about if you opt to take your state pension early three years early and it's reduced by let's say 15% and that means that you're below that means test threshold it would seem a bit counterintuitive to then say, but you can claim it back through means testing. So you would need to come up with with a way of of dealing with that either, and this might not be politically palatable, to say that you can only do this if you can show that you've got other income from other sources to to stop you falling below that threshold. And Um, if that were the case, why would you be doing it, right? Because likely people would be bringing forward their state pension because they need to. You you might have a very small private pension of £30 a week or whatever that just made up the difference. So that's really what I'm I'm talking about, rather than having the £200 a week private pension that means you. So it's about once you've added whatever private pension you've got to your reduced state pension, if you can show that you're still have enough income to to live on, then maybe that would be one way. Another might be to require individuals to to get guidance from money helper or or pension-wise. So there are various protection measures you you could put in, and you would need to weigh up the pros and cons of those and also how palatable those would be, again, to to the population at large. Would, Would people see this as fair? But I do think that if the government did want to continue to increase the state pension age, it might just reduce some of the the antagonism towards that if people were given some personal freedom and choice around that. But in answer to your question, I don't have a detailed white paper to, to present, but the thinking's there. And with a bit of will and a bit of government support, I'm sure that as an industry we could come together and come up with some decent proposals here. Did you make a submission to the State Pension Age Review? Yes, we did. And that was the key key point that we, we made within that. Okay, well, it'll be interesting to see what uh, emerges from that. And just staying with the fiscal statement or the autumn statement, social care. So there was an announcement of a delay, you know, still waiting for Dillnot, you know, it's, it's like <laughs> waiting for Godot. So what was your take on that? Well, I'm a big fan of what Dillnot's originally proposed and the the various iterations that we've gone through, including the one that that made its way through. We thought we had a final Mm. social care deal that that was going to to go live October 2023. And the reason I'm a big fan of it isn't because it's necessarily perfect for everyone. I do appreciate that 
that some individuals will benefit more from this than others. So it's not the silver bullet that, that solves the social care crisis. But to me, I was a big fan because for the first time, we had some clear divisions between what the government was going to pay mm-hmm. and what the individual would be expected to pay. And that allows you to plan ahead. And in my vision, I would see in future advisors speaking to clients about their retirement choices and factoring in social care, the potential to have to fund social care into that. And perhaps by notionally ring-fencing part of your defined contribution pension, try not to touch that so that that's available should you need it in later life for social care, or finding other ways of allocating income flows and and, and, and the 86,000 plus indexation to cover the, the care costs. So I think it could really help people plan ahead. So the fact that it was delayed two years is a, is, was a big disappointment to me. I do appreciate that it was linked into, well, the government's going to provide more overall funding for social care. And there was a reference to giving local councils more time to get ready for the New Deal and the extra work that they would need to undertake. But if you're an individual or have a family member who is either currently paying for their own care or who will start doing so between October 2023 and October 2025, then what the delay means for them is that they will still have to pay their personal contributions to care for that period, and it won't count towards the £86,000 cap. The clock will not start Mm -hmm. ticking until October 2025. Assuming it does start then, yeah. Well, and again, as you've already highlighted, we're talking after uh, a future general election. So, so yeah, it's very difficult to talk with certainty there. But what is certain is that you will be paying your own way uh, for two years longer minimum. And the numbers are difficult to, to bring to life. But as a simple example, if you found that your local council was prepared to pay £700 towards residential care, and we know that we've got this notional national £200 of that, which is deemed to go towards your daily living costs, which you're responsible for and will be under the new deal. But there's a £500 difference there. And had the deal come in next October, then £500 a week would have been going towards your cap. So over two years, that £500 will come to £52,000, if I've done the sums right. So that's £52,000 extra that everyone who needs care over that period will have to pay. And the other big group of of people who lose out are those who have modest assets under 100000 who would have started to get means-tested support sooner under the New Deal, but won't now until again October 2025 at the earliest. And so they could find that they run down or even completely lose all of those assets before the New Deal kicks in. So two groups who are adversely affected, and the second of those is certainly one of those vulnerable groups that the government said it wanted to protect, so they've perhaps slipped through that safety net. Yeah, well, I agree with that, and my recollection of the most recent set of proposals for social care funding didn't particularly favour those people with the assets around the 100 grand mark. So if you had a million pounds... <laughs> the cap worked pretty well for you because it meant you would actually preserve the bulk of your wealth. Yeah, It's those people with, with some money but not a lot of money for whom the care reforms helped but weren't particularly kind from my recollection. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember all the detailed ins and outs, but certainly the deal was better than it is at the moment. So it was a step forward, even if perhaps certain groups might have hoped for for, for more support. And and you're right, you could argue it's the the very wealthy who will benefit most, although you could say that the very wealthy probably can afford to pay their own social care costs, whatever. So it might have been a kind of middle band who were particularly helped by this, by the cap. Can you see, so I think the question around clarity and certainty in financial planning, and certainly the work I was doing on equity release earlier this year, it was apparent that one of the reasons people 
hoard wealth. I mean, that's a slightly pejorative term, but you know, the, the way they guard their wealth in later life is that fear that that cost will hit them towards the end of their lives. So I think predictability and certainty around what the cost limits might prove to be, I think is really important for people and undermines the lack of that clarity, undermines people's capacity to, to make really efficient and coherent financial plans. Can you envisage an insurance scheme getting off the ground? Because the, the nature of the risks and liabilities with care funding really should lend itself to an insurance scheme. I don't actually think that a, a private sector insurance scheme looks particularly attractive. And, and the reason for that is that quite a high proportion of individuals will need some form of, of social care. So I think there are various estimates that suggest maybe, say, one in four people might need some kind of, of social care in later life. So an insurance-based scheme that you opted into, run by the private sector, you would effectively be paying your premium and one in four people would get a payback. You'd have to have a pretty high excess on that, wouldn't you, to make the, the, the provision of that product? Well, that's interesting. I hadn't been thinking about the excess, but I'd been thinking about your premiums are going to be hell of a high, and yeah. that you know, even without all the costs and the admin or whatever, you'd be you'd be paying you know ten thousand pounds or forty thousand pounds potential payouts. I know that not everyone needs the full amount of, of of care costs, but to me, it looked like it's almost like you know putting all your money on red or black. It, it just seemed like too big a, a gamble. It's not like paying a small premium to protect against a small risk. And of course, the other thing in the private sector, if you were doing this in the private sector, is if you wanted to offer an unlimited payout up to the cap, albeit the cap will go up in future and all these sorts of things, it, it would be quite difficult to, to do all your, your underwriting and your actuarial analysis to come up with a, a, a sound premium that you feel would definitely be, be sustainable longer term. So I think that private sector, I have lots of doubts that some kind of insurance contract could work. And of course, the other thing is, there would be a huge amount of self-selection here, wouldn't yes. there? Um, you wouldn't be paying your premiums if you didn't think you might need care. So that's a further challenge, um, which effectively takes you back to a, a state-run scheme. And we've heard people suggest that you could have some form of auto-enrolment. But again, I'm a bit concerned about that concept because auto-enrolment for pensions, to me, works because everyone will benefit from being auto-enrolled into a pension scheme because everyone will need some income in retirement and so the payout will, will benefit them. But in social care context, to kind of opt everyone in on a basis that only one in four might benefit, that to me doesn't work. So I don't think auto-enrolment works. It might have to be completely compulsory, but I'm not sure anyone would have the political appetite for that either. So... Yeah, I, I do still think that more of the, the voluntary savings approach might be the one that we should explore first. But we need that certainty. We need those parameters to make that workable. Interesting. Sounds like there's some more work to be done there. So, and I guess, sure. you know, the, the, the national insurance precept, the, you know, the hypothecated slice of national insurance was a, a step towards that compulsory social mechanism. So, look, we've got, we've got a new pensions minister and we've got a new economic secretary to the Treasury. Have you met either of them yet? No, no, I've not, no. I'm going to the TISA conference uh, later this week, and I, I believe that Andrew Griffiths is presenting okay. at that, so right. hopefully meet him there. Interesting. So let's say you find you happen to find yourself in the elevator with Andrew Griffiths, or indeed with Laura Trott. What would you say to them? What do you think should be on their to-do list? I'm not sure how tall a building the ties of conscience is at. Let's assume it's a skyscraper, right? You've got a few <laughs> minutes in the lift. Look, it breaks. The break, the lift breaks halfway up, but you're stuck yeah. there. So this is an opportunity <laughs> of a lifetime to bend the ear of the politician in charge of financial services. Where do you go? Okay. Well, I'll start with well, I'll start with Laura Shot, but ideally I'd have them both in the elevator at the same time because Good call. There, are, yeah. there are some things that really they should be working on together, but we can maybe come back to that. So, first of all, with Laura Trott, my order might not be the order of most importance, but I think I'd probably start with pension dashboards, purely because we've got so far down the path that I just want to see them 
concluded on. So I want to continue. I thought we'd done to... it. I thought Guy had got that one over the line already. It was, it was like it was done in all but name now, surely. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so do, you, do, you think, do you think not? Do you think it might all still fall flat on its face? No, no, I'm sure that they will come, but I think there are some future challenges to be met along the way. So we need to keep the momentum up. We need to keep all the the final legislation and FC regulation uh, moving forward. We just need to formally get this over the line and have those up and running. So, no, they will come, but let's not allow anyone to take their foot off the the pedal on this. So that would be number one. Obviously, the future of auto-enrolment would have to be on the list. We're still talking about the 2017 review in 2022, so that's not great, is it? I do fully accept that now is not the time to be increasing contribution rates or or putting more burden on either individuals or or employers. But at least what we should have is some kind of roadmap to to, to get to a a more generous or inclusive form of auto-enrolment. Self-employed pensions, again, it seems to have been talked about for so, so long and we've not quite got that, well, I was going to say we've not quite got that finished. I don't know if we've even got that started. So I think we need to to refocus on that important group and take on board the new challenges that they face in the current climate. And sorry to interrupt you, do you think HMRC would come out to play on that? Well, I do think that using the tax system somehow is the, the equivalent of using employers for the employed population. So I am attracted to that as a concept, but we know that there are different drivers for the self-employed that, you know, if you, you went in too heavy-handed, you might get very high opt-outs, for example. So yeah, We said that about the employed and it never happened, right? Yeah, well, you're right. So maybe I'm being pessimistic, but I think that, there's not the same peer pressure as as you would get within a, a workforce. Sorry to interrupt you again, again twice in a minute. I think the other the other issue with the self-employed is that there's a much stronger message for the employed because you're doubling your money, you know, because yeah, of the yeah. employer contribution, and you just don't get that with the self-employed. So I do think there's a higher risk. The self-employed yeah. would look at that tax relief on its own and think, well, yeah, actually, bird in the hand, I'll take, I'll opt out of that. Yeah, no. We certainly can't assume that the solution for the self-employed is the same as it was for employees, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't at least try to encourage the norm being that you put something aside for your your pension, whether it's through the tax system or through some other route. So, well, okay, I'm going to go for a hat trick of interruptions now, Stephen. So, my apologies again. Look back to the first green paper on auto enrolment. Way back, in fact, stakeholder pensions way back in the midst of time must have been 1998 or something. They nearly made it compulsory then, and you know, there's an argument that says, ah, look. Autonomous has worked on the employed sector. We've got participation rates. Everybody's kind of got the fact that we all need pensions. Like, let's just make it compulsory now. For everyone or just for the self-employed? Uh, why not everybody? Let's just like let's just it's a done deal now. It's like, you know, we've actually done it in all but name. So let's just formalize it. Let's just make it all compulsory. Yeah. Well, again, that would just depend on political appetite, wouldn't it? I think that when I would take a slightly different or or a more hesitant approach would be if we think that the next stage of auto-enrolment again would be to increase contribution rates because I think that at 8% it would be highly unlikely that, that many individuals would suffer so much now that it doesn't compensate for the benefit when they ultimately retire. So mm-hmm. the, what they sacrifice today compared to what they'll gain in future, I think that the balance is reasonable across all earnings bands. I think if you moved the default contribution up to 12%, I'd be more concerned about making it compulsory yeah. because I think then you might find that the lower earners were sacrificing so much of their income now, Agreed, yeah. but were actually ending up possibly having more in retirement than they, than, than they would be having to live on of working age. So you would need to consider that compulsion point against what other changes you were planning to make there. But this is turning into a hell of a high skyscraper. I, um, it is. Well, it's a very slow-moving <laughs> I mean, lift. I, right? I'm used to going up in the lift in the cheese grater, but this, <laughs> even, <laughs> even that's quite a speedy lift. Other things, these are more for the longer, slightly longer term, but engagement, we need to keep pushing on that. I know that people say now's not the right time to 
to encourage people to take too much attention to their pension. But I think there's this, you know, Lord make me good, but not just yet. Yeah. I think we could be saying that forever. Agreed. I keep thinking that that's Dolly Parton that said that, but apparently it was some saint. But anyway. Same thing. <laughs> um, well done. Other things, extending pension freedoms to trust-based members. We've had a consultation yeah. on that. I'd like to see that move forward. And I'd like the DWP to learn from the FCA's experiences there. Well, it's handy having someone who's made all the mistakes for you in advance, isn't it? <laughs> Well, you say mistakes, I'm not sure I, that's your word, not mine. But um, uh, yeah, well, on, on that point, I think, for example, I wouldn't want to see DWP rush into investment pathways until hmm. we've the FCs had a chance to review how they've worked for contract-based pensions. And of course, we've been through, as we've talked about, some very volatile market conditions. So the review that the FC is planning there might need to be broadened to just check that the whole concept of pathways and four distinct pathways mm. still works when you've got still works. Did, 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 did it ever work? Well, I think that in my view, it works for certain populations better than others, and it works in that it's better than nothing. Okay. So if you're non-advised, so first of all, I don't really see the point of pathways for anyone with an advisor. So um, I would never have had them for anyone on an, on an advised situation. You, you seem to have a different view across the industry. So if you are in the bespoke SIP market and you've got individuals who are making very active personal investment choices, then what we're hearing is that pathways are very, very seldom used in mm. that scenario. But I think if you're in the workplace, if you've got lots of workplace schemes and you've got members coming out of contract-based workplace pensions, haven't got an advisor, haven't been used to making their own self-select investment decisions, then I do think pathways have delivered some benefits. So I wouldn't uh, dismiss them entirely, but I think that we do need that review to check that they are delivering on the intended purpose before we extend them, as I say, to, to trust-based schemes. And if Henry Tapper were in this conversation, he would at this point be banging the drum for CDC as a pathway, as an investment choice, as a decumulation vehicle to solve all the ills of the drawbacks of annuities and, and kind of run a, a drawdown fund in retirement. So, so what are your okay. thoughts around that? I'm a little bit in two minds about how much I'd be pushing Laura to take forward CDC. I'm very interested to see how CDC works for Royal Mail and if there are any other really big employers out there who want to go down the same path. So that's one thing. Then you've got the the proposed extension to multi-employer schemes. So the idea that master trusts might run on a CDC basis. I certainly don't think existing master trusts are going to change over to that. So I think that would have to be a new master trust being set up to do this. And there are, I'm interested to see how the, the consultation paper looks on this, because I think there are additional challenges to do with cross-subsidies. Yeah. Obviously, cross-subsidy is at the heart of, of CDC. And if you've got a single employer scheme with the backing of its union to operate on a cross-subsidised basis between individuals, between age groups, between leavers and stairs, all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff then that's one thing. But as soon as you then turn that into a multi-employer concept, you've got to think about, does the mortality risk for a company in Glasgow with kind of manual labour or whatever, does that work if you're joining up, you're pooling of your mortality risk with, with a, a very different you know, professional firm in the South East or whatever? You know, so I think that you've got issues of cross-subsidy that we need to be thought through. And... Also, I think the benefit design, could you come up with a multi-employer CDC that could operate on the basis of a standardised set of benefits, certain restrictions mm. that would be acceptable to multiple employers? So I'm not convinced about the multi-employer accumulation CDC. I think where the more interesting angle comes in, and this may be what you were alluding to, is if you had, and it would need to be multi-employer, but if you had a decumulation-only CDC. And certainly you can see that that might have attractions 
in between Anietes and Drawdown. Obviously, it would still be offering a, an income for life. It wouldn't be offering a guaranteed income for life. It would be a target income for life that could go up, but equally could go down based on overall performance. But because of the less restrictive investment approach, because you wouldn't have to reserve for guarantees, you'd hope that the target income, the starting income, and hopefully the ongoing income would would be higher. So I think that could appeal to some people who would say, I don't mind not having the absolute 100% guarantee. I'm prepared to take a little risk to get more starting income and hopefully ongoing income. And it might also appeal to some people who go for drawdown at the moment because they really don't want to buy an annuity. So, yeah, I I do see more more potential there. Again, I think that it's not going to be an easy build in that you're going to need to achieve scale to make the pooling work. So where do you seed? Where, where do you get your seed capital if you like to get this up and running? But but yeah, that that that's definitely a, a far more interesting area, the the kind of DC DC decumulation CDC. Interesting. Anything else for Laura Trotz? Goodness, I think we've reached the forty yeah. fourth floor now. Um, meanwhile, Andrew Griffiths <laughs> still sitting quietly in the corner waiting his turn. <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got a shorter list for for him. I think the first one would be this advice guidance boundary. <laughs> yeah. That that I think there's growing support across the industry for the Treasury to take the steps they need to take to allow the FCA to construct this kind of new regulated permission. So to me, this would take the form of what I'd call more more personalised guidance. So we can do guidance at the moment, but it's very restricted. As soon as you start to personalise that, you fear crossing that advice line. So I'd like to think that regulated firms, so that we avoid all fears of bad actors coming in and Mm. ripping off customers, regulated firms applying for a new permission to offer a more personalised form of guidance. And I think that has all sorts of potential benefits for consumers as well as for all forms of firms. I'm certainly not seeing this as in any way detracting from the benefits of advice, but I think it could sit alongside advice for those who can't afford it or for whom the the costs would be disproportionate. So that would be by far my number one. Before you go on, can I just check one thing on that? Is the key distinction there? Like I am personalising the guidance I'm giving you. I've taken account of what you've told me and I'm giving you guidance based on your personal circumstances. But isn't the key distinction... I'm not taking responsibility for the outcomes here. It's, you know, I can I can guide you, but you have to make your own decisions. And if it doesn't work for you, that's on you rather than on me. Is that is that how you distinguish personalised guidance from regulated advice? You wouldn't be giving a specific personal recommendation, but just as under the new consumer duty, we all need to work to help deliver good outcomes the more personalised guidance, we'd still there would still be some responsibility within the remit of, of the regulated permission to make sure that the way that you were going about offering this and the, the factors you were considering mm-hmm. were supportive of improved outcomes for customers compared to those who didn't receive the more personalised guidance. But you wouldn't have the same responsibility as under full regulated advice where you're making that that personal recommendation. But you're right, you would be able to to take on board certain key facts about the individual and present the options, if you like, for the way forward with a stronger nudge to to what you regarded as the the way forward. But I think there's a whole range of of ways this, this could help, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's helping people use pension dashboards, whether it's about helping people consider moving into stocks and shares rather than than sticking with cash investment. So different applications in different sectors of the market. Fair enough. So would you also also bend Andrew Griffiths here on pension tax relief? Yeah, so I can't remember if I, I mentioned earlier that I think the reason that private pensions got off without any further changes in the budget is because of the the fact that the Treasury see these as having a pension superpower. Yes. But they got off, but we've still got the freeze on the lifetime allowance for ultimately for five years. So by the time we come out of that freeze, I think that that particular 
limitation on, on pensions, the taxation of pensions, but also the annual allowance, the money purchase annual allowance, even the 3,600 that you know that you can you can contribute without linking it to earnings. There are going to be so many limitations within the pensions tax system that I'm not sure it's going to be fit for purpose anymore. And I'm not sure that you would start there if you were designing a system that was designed to help people make provision for their own retirement. So I certainly think that we need to start thinking now about what the next phase would be for the whole pensions tax relief system. And the other freeze, obviously, which will continue to run even longer, is on the income tax rates thresholds. So you're going to have millions more people paying higher rate tax, maybe a million more paying additional rate tax. And that also draws into question whether it is still appropriate to have tax relief based on your, your marginal rate. So I can see two things coming together. One, the freeze on the limits stretching the boundaries of is this fit for purpose? And you've got the rates of tax that people are paying, so many more paying higher rates of tax, that the two come together and you say, right, that's the point in time when you need to start thinking about the overall tax relief system. But as you know, Tom, this is not an easy an easy fix. It's got all sorts of complications, including for defined benefit schemes, for salary sacrifice, loopholes. So it would take a few years. Um, so hopefully I'd be saying to Andrew Griffith, why don't we start thinking about this relatively soon and, and exploring what we'd need to be considered to make sure that if we did want something radically different from 2026 onwards or from 2028 onwards, how would it look? How, how could that begin to be framed? And it's notable that with first with stakeholder pensions and then with auto-enrolment with the help of the Turner Commission and then even with the A-Day reforms, you had a government with a stunking political majority and an opposition that was kind of in the wilderness and had nothing to gain mm-hmm. by just uh, obstructing reform. It actually made sense. There was, a, there was a bit of an alignment to the planets where it was possible to, to forge political consensus on some of those reforms and get them over the line. You kind of need that again. And I mean, not just a, across Parliament, but also thinking about the opposition that chancellors have met from within their own parties to mm. reforms of some of these pension tax rules in the past, where the backbenchers can be as much of a problem as the opposition spokesperson. I think you know, your point about laying the groundwork, if we're going to get Andrew Griffith to take us towards pension tax reform, it, it's going to require quite a lot of political capital and quite a lot of consensus building, isn't it? Yeah, and you've already mentioned we've got a general election in between times as well, so not a straightforward journey. But but again, I think most people, I can't speak for everyone, but I think a lot of people would would be open to thinking quite radically about moving to a flat rate of tax relief, for example, but only if it's thought through properly that we don't get a surprise when the knock-on consequences are very different from what had been predicted. We can't afford another one of those um, intentions anytime soon. No, indeed. And yeah, I think it, it, it does require a lot of coming together and a lot of talking about it to try and achieve consensus on it. Look, I, I feel like it would be remiss of us not to wind up this conversation without just revisiting consumer duty briefly. <laughs> How excited, Stephen Cameron, are you at the prospect of the implementation of consumer duty? <laughs> I've been living and breathing new consumer duty for the last probably two years now. And my interest now Fortunately for me, I've got lots of other people within Aegon who are, who are taking on the massive responsibility of actually implementing and making sure that we're fully compliant. I don't need to worry about that, so that, that's great. But what I'm really interested in is this whole need for collaboration across the distribution chain. So I think that the new consumer duty can and should deliver improvements for customers and also for our industry. But only if, first of all, everyone takes a proportionate approach, and that includes the FCA, but secondly, that we truly collaborate across the distribution chain. So my key interest right now, and I'm having lots of discussions and sessions with with advisor firms to, to do so, is to collaborate 
to get real understanding of how manufacturers are responding and how they will be making changes to their propositions, how advisor firms will be responding, the new advisor services that they might be offering or the different ways that they'll articulate these, the different ways that they'll show value for these. That will only work really well if we get together, collaborate and make sure that we understand how everyone else is uh, moving forward. So, yes, I remain quite excited about the new consumer duty, but it's been nice to talk about something different today. Well, and actually just staying with the consumer duty, I think the other part of that collaboration is just a long-term sharing of data in a way that I don't think we've had to do in the past because of the need to look across the value chain and, and think... Is the service that I'm providing in this value chain, how does it serve the consumer when taken in the context of the other components of the value chain? And that that's not a once and done. That's something that's going to have to be revisited on an ongoing basis. So advisors, manufacturers, distributors, everyone's going to have to share that information on an ongoing basis, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. There'll be a lot more MI exchange up and down the distribution chain. And I don't think that we'll all necessarily get that right on the 31st of July next year. I think that it might take some time for that to iterate and, and evolve. I think that there are risks of firms not being ready to share the necessary information. I think there are also risks of some parts of the distribution chain asking for too much and it becoming disproportionate. So ideally, we would kind of, subject to competition law and all the rest of it, we would kind of get together and work out how to do this on a consistent basis so that it wasn't a case of every firm asking for their own bespoke MI exchange, Mm. that we would begin to to gravitate towards some core MI that truly is required and proportionate for passing up and down the chain. Some of it we'll already be able to extract from from information we hold, but I'm sure there, as you say, will be a need for requests for additional information or to to drill down to the next level of detail, perhaps, if the the high-level MI indicates any concerns, if you like, uh, under the new duty. But but yeah, MI exchange will be a big, big part of, of the next eight months or so. Good stuff. Stephen Cameron from Aegon, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Likewise. Thanks, Tom. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.